Hi there, I'm Jim. And I'm Claire. Let's talk teaching. Welcome to Let's Talk Teaching, a podcast from the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology here at Illinois State University. I'm Jim G. Joining me today, once again, Dr. Claire LaMonica, our director. Hi, Claire. Hi, Jim. Hey, today we're going to be talking about something that has been around for about 30 years. Um, it's almost kind of become ubiquitous. I love that word, by the way. <laughs> we see these little pamphlets that we're going to talk about uh, all over CTLT. We give them out so much. What is it? What is it? Yeah. Um, well, what we're going to be talking about is seven principles for good practice in undergraduate education. Okay. And it was originally um, an article in a journal mm -hmm. and has been reprinted in um, pamphlet form. It's all over the internet. You can, if you start Googling principles for good practice, it'll pop up. Um, and you don't have to because we will link to uh, <laughs> the source article or as close as we can get to it on our on our uh, show page for today. I think that's best to yeah. go back to the sort of unabridged version. But um, it's not long, but it's it's basically a set of principles that was derived from a sort of meta-analysis of about 40 publications mm -hmm. about undergraduate education. And so what the authors did was um, do a lot of research on good practice in undergraduate education and then pull it together and distill it down into these seven principles. Mm -hmm. So we, we do. We have them everywhere. We have – if you've ever uh, been to CTLT – uh, when at a time when lunch was served, yeah. um, then these principles were literally right in front of your nose as you were picking up your salad or your sandwich. Okay, um, because we have them. Uh, we had a wonderful uh, graphics intern one year who mm -hmm. created um, posters out of these. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And they're yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. And uh, but we also tend to give out these pamphlets. Mm -hmm. um, Pretty much at the drop of a hat. We we use them during workshops. We give them out during consultations. Mm -hmm. So they're sort of everywhere. They're kind of all over campus at this point. Yeah, yeah. And we'll put a picture up of our uh, of our posters too. We, we should do we that. Should, we can show that yeah. off a little bit. Um, and of course, we're giving these out not because we have them, and we're trying to we're trying to we're trying to push them because we we overordered them. Right. Uh, it's it's because there's there's really something useful. Um, in these seven principles, although we should say that this is not like what we've talked about in a couple of previous episodes. This is not a prescriptive. I'm using the word properly now, not proscriptive. Prescriptive. Uh, it's not a step-by-step -step sort of thing uh, or a how-to thing. It is, um, like you said, uh, uh, best practices. It it's, is. it's best practices. It's promising practices. Yeah. It's a little more. Uh, it's a little more descriptive, although it also is. Um, it's kind of a combination between descriptive and how-to. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, it describes these principles, but then it gives some specific uh, suggestions for implementation okay, and how so they can be implemented into any class. So let's talk about what are the seven principles. Okay. All right. The big seven. The big so, seven, right. So the, magni the, the, magnificent the Magnificent Seven. The Magnificent Seven of teaching. There, there you we go. go. So um, the seven principles are that good practice first encourages student-faculty contact, mm -hmm. then encourages cooperation among students, third encourages active learning, fourth provides prompt feedback, five emphasizes time on task, six communicates high expectations, 
and seven, respects diverse talents and ways of learning. If you can do those things, if you can kind of weave those principles through your teaching, Mm -hmm. then the result can be uh, improved student learning. But it's not like, you know, you do one of them on Mondays and another one on Wednesdays and, you know. It's, right. It's These are just, ongoing. It, they have to be sort yeah. of, they are they are principles. They are foundational. They sort of underlie your pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, don't we, why don't we highlight kind of the important points just, about each one? And I, and I think we can focus uh, uh, a little bit more in depth on some of them today and then maybe, you know, down the road we, we'll, we'll single out a few of them. Because, yeah. again, these are kind of, these are kind of uh, woven into all of yeah. what we do as teachers. I, I think just sort of an overview. You know, when we, I, I think the interesting thing about thinking about student-faculty contact is mm-hmm. that um, we tend to think of our uh, contact with students being primarily in the classroom, but this principle encourages us to extend that contact beyond the classroom. So meeting students for office hours, attending, um, attending, for example, meetings of um, student RSOs that are tied to our discipline. So, um, you know, not necessarily being an advisor, but but engaging in the um, activities that some of those offer. Just getting to know students. And that's the big thing. We know that one of the most important factors in retention and persistence is the connection that a student makes with an individual person on campus. Mm-hmm. And also that if, if you talk to people about why they pursued a certain area, why they became a sociologist, right. um, yeah. it's because they had this professor, you know, maybe in the first sociology course they ever took that just, mm-hmm. you know, lit, it lit them up. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, you know, there's, that's just really huge is, is spending time getting to know our students. Right. So good practices that encourage cooperation among students. That's more than just having them do a group presentation at the end of the semester, right? Well, yes. <laughs> Although <laughs> I'm not against group presentations at the end of the semester. No, not at all. But, um, yeah. Or against having them write um, papers collaboratively. But boy, that's a whole bunch of different podcasts. <laughs> yes, yes, it um, is. But yeah, I think even encouraging the formation of student study groups mm-hmm. is really important. And it's particularly important for certain populations of students um, who don't. So first-generation college students, a lot of times, think that they have to go it on their own. Mm-hmm. And they they don't understand that, no, studying together, getting together with groups, talking about the ideas from your courses is one way of understanding the, the material and um, no, it's not cheating. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's cooperation. Mm-hmm. And that's, and so um, that's kind of a good practice, a good learning practice for students. So we need to, but we need to encourage it because not right. everybody will automatically do it. And there are existing organizations or there are programs that are put on by the Dean of Students Office or the University College or RSOs or whatever, um, where students have the opportunity to, to talk to people who are in similar circumstances. So part of it might also be as faculty members being aware of what all the, of the of the buffet of services that are offered on a, on a campus and, and helping your students uh, uh, connect with those. Yeah, sometimes even just being able to say to a student who comes to your office and says, yeah. oh my, you know, I'm, yeah. I, um, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I, I'm a vet, you mm-hmm. know, I, um, I was in Iraq and I feel pretty out of place with all these 18-year-olds who have no world experience. Just knowing 
that we have um, a vet a study center specifically yeah. for veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, you know you don't you don't need to do much more than that. Mm-hmm. You can just mention that it's there, and uh, they'll find it, and that'll be huge for them. I think that's good, and I think as we go forward with the rest of our episode here today, I think that's actually a good uh, what we just did there. I think that's helpful because. Um, let's give people just little suggestions on how they can apply these principles. And then again, we can go in more depth in, in future episodes on, uh, on, on what some of the deep meaning is behind some of these principles. For example, number three talks about uh, encourages, uh, you know, uh, good practice encourages active learning. I think active learning is kind of one of those phrases it's kind of a buzzword now. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. In fact, students it's probably ask a, for it. Students ask for it by name. We we yeah. talked about that in a previous <laughs> podcast. Um, and I've had I've had you know we need to do more active learning. Okay. Yeah. Do you really know what that means? Um, so uh, I I guess part of it is really understanding what active learning is. Can you can you give me the ones? Can you give me the elevator explanation? The elevator speech on active learning. Yeah. So the elevator speech on active learning is that active learning has three components: information and ideas experiences, and reflection. And if you can offer students a chance to take advantage of, of all three of those, give them some information, give them something to do with it, and have them reflect on how what they did uh, connected to what they learned, to the, mm-hmm. the information you had given them, then that's, that's active learning. That's active learning. So just getting students to talk a little bit in class, which is a laudable goal in and of itself some days, yeah. <laughs> um, but just getting them to talk in class is not the full uh, idea of active learning. No. Uh, just having them be conscious is not is not <laughs> is not as a, as opposed to inactive learning, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Um, so okay. So what what's what what are some suggestions if you wanted to incorporate this or you know if, if you were looking to incorporate this principle into your teaching? I know that active learning is a huge topic, but what what would you what would you suggest, or what are some things that you've well, seen? Well, you know, it do? it sounds harder than it is. I mean, it's it's actually it's not that hard. So right. if if you're teaching math, mm-hmm. you know, then you explain a concept, you explain how to do something with math, and you have your students do it. I think the piece that gets left out a lot of times is the reflection. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, their chance to sort of. Um, engage at a metacognitive level about, okay, so how did you do that? How did you do that problem? You know, mm-hmm. what 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 helped you work through it? Where did you run into trouble? How did you overcome the trouble? And that same principle can be applied in a lot of different disciplines, I mean, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't think we want to make it sound harder or more complicated than it really is. Okay. Number four. <laughs> Number four is the hardest one. <laughs> Yeah, I just all I had to, all I had to do was pause. This there. is this is so hard. That number four is give prompt feedback, and yeah. you know, I struggle with this myself. I once I once pretty much incited a riot by <laughs> by um, when I was working with the writing programs. One of my responsibilities was each year I reviewed and revised um, this course guide that we had for English one hundred and one, the freshman composition course. And one year, I put somewhere in the course guide that students should expect that their instructors would return graded work within, I don't know if I said a week or two weeks, whatever I said, Yeah. the graduate students who were primarily responsible for teaching that course almost burned me in effigy. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was not my most popular right. semester. But, you know, so prompt feedback really is important. It is. It um, is. Yeah. It's more important at the formative stages. So mm-hmm. formative feedback needs to be 
quite prompt, like mm-hmm. probably in the moment. Yeah. Summative feedback can, you know, that can be a little more delayed. But the problem is that the best learning is going to happen. The sooner you can get the feedback back to the students and they can digest the feedback while the learning experience is still fresh in their minds, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. going to help them learn. Mm-hmm. You have to be realistic. I mean, I th- I actually think um, that it helps to tell your students, I plan to give you your, your work back within X amount of time. And that sort of puts in a little layer of accountability for you. Well, it's um, it, it, it does. Now the, now, the flip side of that is that you have to deliver on that right. within X amount of time. And, and if you don't... Yeah. life happens. Yeah. So, you know, as soon as you guarantee that, your kid is going to get sick mm-hmm. and, you know, or something <laughs> right. is going to happen. Yeah. But, you know, that's not a bad reminder either. No, that's <laughs> Life true. happens yeah. to everybody. It happens to us. It happens to our students. And, yeah. we, and if we have to throw ourselves on the mercy of a class and say, gosh, I meant to get that yeah. back to you. But, you know, yeah. this happened and I couldn't. They're usually pretty understanding. So I, well, just before we leave this point or this principle, I should say, two observations. One, I, I have found that I have kind of in, in, the, in the teaching I'm doing now, in the course that I've been teaching for the last few semesters, it is a very iterative process because these are students who are working on critiquing performance and critiquing their own performance. And so we have to perf- we perform, critique, perform, critique, and we're looking for a longitudinal sort of view of their, of their improvement. So that's forced me to actually give them my feedback because as soon as they give their feedback, then I release my feedback so that we're right. not you know, and not. and what you said was just really important, and I should have said that up front. Prompt feedback is not the same as instructor feedback. Right. It doesn't have – not okay. all feedback has to come from the instructor. Peer feedback is mm-hmm. quite valuable. And also, feedback doesn't have to be written. Mm-hmm. So especially in this day and age, you know, there's so many ways you can – you know, you can uh, record your voice on your right. phone. Right, right. Um, and send the, you know, send what you, your message to the students so mm-hmm. you can record your feedback. I mean, there's lots and lots and lots of options. Yeah. Um, and, and ways to speed it up. Yeah. I think the other thought about prompt feedback is that if you find that you're constantly struggling with prompt feedback, that's a good something to come talk to us here at CTLT about. And in general, you may want to look at how you're structuring the assignments because occasionally I will talk to uh, faculty members, and I did this myself, where, I would have these mega assignments that are very complex and multi-part, and they could very easily be broken up into easily digestible pieces, you know, uh, easily workable pieces, so they can get a little bit of feedback as they begin the second part. Right, right. So good practice emphasizes time on task. What does time on task mean? This is really interesting. This is time actually engaged in learning. Okay. So, and you know... This really is very interesting to me. So a a number of years ago, there was a study that came out that said students learn better in online courses. And everybody just went nuts. It was like, oh, my gosh, this is – it was heresy, you know. It can't be true. It can't be – tell me it's not so. But if you read the research, if you dug down into the research, the reason students were doing better was that they were spending more time engaging with the content in an Mm -hmm. online class than they were in a face-to-face class. Mm -hmm. Because in an online class, the content was available Mm 24-7, and they were going going back and re-engaging. So if if it included a podcast from the instructor explaining a particular concept, 
they could go back and listen to that instructor's explanation again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And they could stop it at points where, you know, if if you were explaining how to do something, they could stop it. They could work on it. Then they could, you know, rewind it or, you know, I know rewind is that's not the right term. But anyway, it wasn't that online learning was more effective. It was that spending time with the content was more effective. I see. Okay. So um, it was it was quite misleading the way that that research was sort of put out there. But right. um, so the key is to get students to, to um, help them engage with the content of your face-to-face course, mm-hmm. perhaps in iterative ways as well. So, okay. And so what are some examples on how you could do that if you're teaching a face-to-face course? I don't accept the first draft that students write. You know, I might collect the first draft that students write. I, 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 I very likely do. And then I, or we, we workshop it. You know, mm-hmm. we talk in class about it mm-hmm. or they share it with a partner or whatever. But the whole idea of the first draft is that it's a first draft and I expect that there will be further iterations mm-hmm. of that draft and in fact they're required to produce further iterations mm-hmm. so they're required to go back and do a second draft and a third draft and some of them do well some of them get just nuts and do you know five and six drafts right yeah, yeah that's okay that's not the norm um, um, those were people who are going to be English teachers when they when they graduate <laughs> but just building that into the course ah, that okay. they would spend an extended amount of time working on something so so it is not just going to the student and saying spend more time reading yeah, this right yeah um, learn Read that chapter again learn harder yeah. you know it, it doesn't work that way so what yeah. you're doing is you're figuring out ways regardless of your discipline to build right. in build in that engagement build in that time to build in a, a, an uh, opportunization yeah. of extended engagement yeah, yeah. And, and and and, sh- and kind of how are you going to do that well right. you're going to go write another draft well you're going yeah. to uh, review someone else's uh, solutions to these to these equations. Right. And right. give them feedback on it. That's a way of uh, they're still doing learning uh, their own material as well. Right. Looking right. Yes. So good practice communicates high expectations. Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, I, you know, I think that a lot of times we think that we're communicating high expectations if um, we just, uh, you know, put our learning outcomes in bold. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. you will learn this. It's, mm-hmm. you know, sort of shouting at the students. That's, that's, it's, yeah, that's not really uh, what we mean, of course. And, right. and, and high expectations are also tricky because they need to be reasonably high expectations. Uh-huh. So we need to know what it's reasonable to expect of the students in a given learning situation. Mm-hmm. Is there a prerequisite for this course? Have they all taken the prerequisite? Reasonable expectations that are not easily accomplished. And, you know, I went to this conference uh, a few weekends ago in yeah. Atlanta, the Teaching Professor Technology Conference. And one of the one of the keynote speakers uh, had a presentation with a great title. Um, and he had some very really good points. It was called The Illusion of Rigor. And, yeah. and the idea that for most faculty members and and he was speaking to to an extent of of the feedback that he that comes from the college and the department and the and the committee down you're giving too many a's to your students um they're looking at it from a grading standpoint and of course we had a great podcast a couple of weeks ago where Julianne and I talked about the difference between assessment and grades right. and what we're really talking about is with setting high expectations is setting the expectation for rigor in in the learning Yes. You know, and if they achieve that, then they are going to get 
a, a high grade in the course. I, I have a, a colleague one time who said, uh, I was talking to her and she said, well, of course my students all get A's. I am a great teacher. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah, well. <laughs> that rocks, you know. You know? And, yeah. if, and, if, and if they are going through the steps and doing that. I mean, students in some of my courses, uh, there are some, most students who get unsatisfactory grades are ones who have not done the reiterative nature of the work. They have because again, I don't always they accept the first one. Emphasize time on task. Well, that, that's exactly so, and, and I think that's a good point too. In it, with these seven principles, we are probably all doing some of these things. Oh, we're all probably doing most of most these things, of them, but know. we're not. But we haven't labeled it as such. Right. And so, this is a good way of having that sort of that sort of framework. Right. Um, good practice respects diverse talents and ways of learning. Yeah, I you know I think this is this is probably one of the things that's really important at the undergraduate level mm-hmm. as opposed to the graduate level because you know by the time students become grad students they've sort of sorted themselves out into disciplines that um, that are a good match with their strengths. Right. But undergraduates are taking uh, you know they're they're at a buffet uh-huh. <laughs> they're t- they're getting a little bit of everything, and so a student whose main strength is speaking and writing, you know, talking, whatever, might struggle in a class. You know, I got a C in bowling. <laughs> you, know? you got a C I, in bowling? Like I did. I got a C in you, bowling. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> I could. There's an explanation for that, but we okay. don't need to go into it right now. Yeah. It all had to do with the grading. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the fact that on the first day of the class, I bowled the best best game of bowling that I've ever bowled in my whole life before or since. But anyway, um I'm not kinesthetically gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I my muscles don't have any memory on their own. They don't, it doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like I have to think out, you know, motions when I'm doing things like bowling. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably overthinking. I actually just read some really interesting research on all that, which we won't go into right now. But anyway, um, just remembering that our students have different strengths. They come into our classrooms with different strengths and finding ways to not not letting them off the hook. You know, when I teach writing, I don't tell my artistically gifted students, oh, you can just draw pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. <laughs> we'll do pictographs. Sure. Yeah. But I often encourage them to draw as a pre-writing activity. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I have all my students, some days we get up and we go on walks as a pre-writing activity or as a revision activity or a peer response activity. You know, I try to come at writing from a lot of a lot of different directions mm-hmm. um, so that they can find an entry into my discipline through their own area of strength. Well, Claire, that's an awful lot for our 20, probably closer to 25-minute podcast at this point. Uh, yeah. So we'll we'll take some time in future episodes to kind of suss out these ideas a little bit more. And, of course, as we said, these are principles that are, that are kind of, if not universal to our teaching, they are certainly foundational to our teaching. So we're probably doing a lot of these. But it's helpful to recognize, right, uh, right. that we are. Yeah, like, and, and sometimes to recognize what we are doing. What and, we are and doing. And just give it a try. And give it a try. Yeah. So, all right. Well, Claire... Thank you again. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Let's Talk Teaching. You can find out more about our podcast by going to our website at ctlt.illinoisstate.edu. Just click on the podcast link, which is in the upper right of the page. You can find notes on today's show, and you can find out how to subscribe. 
For Claire LaMonica and everyone here at CTLT, happy teaching.